um, just as far as questions about the text, and then uh, one on the use of the law and sanctification, a few on our responsibility in sanctification, one on habitual sin, and some on and, and several actually on sanctification and assurance, which apparently we have a lot of guilt-ridden folks with us today. So <laughs> let me uh, um, let me start off with just kind of the, the textual question. Sure. Paul's use of the marriage illustration in chapter seven is often used to ban remarriage. Is that taking the illustration out of context? Yes. I guess that's a short answer to the question being asked. Um, it's an illustration that's asymmetrical, isn't it? Because there's a dominant partner versus a lesser partner. And then when the analogy is actually used, what happens is that we're talking about the law dying, but that's not what it is. It's about a partner dying at that point. And so it's not exactly fitting the marriage analogy. But there are a lot of positives about that marriage analogy that allows us to, uh, 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 to reflect upon the relationship with the law. However, this is the point that I think worth making again. We have to ask the questions of the text that the text wants to answer. That is, it's less important to us what question we bring to the text. I'm not saying that's unimportant. But the question you have to ask is, are we taking the text in its proper context? And his point there is not about articulating the theology or the discussion about marriage or remarriage. That's a great question for us to discuss, but that's not the text that gives us any clear guidance in that discussion one way or the other. Um, great, thank you. Yeah. If, if we're already resurrected in Christ, so if you take earlier in Romans chapter 6, it talks about death with Christ, resurrection with Christ, um, spiritually, why does Paul say the telos of sanctification, the goal of sanctification is eternal life in Romans 6.22. Here, I think one thing that we have uh, to keep in mind is there are different ways, let me, this is an analogy a lot of people do use, so let me express it this way. Um, To those of us who don't see the whole picture at one time, um, and the analogy often used is about blind people touching different parts of an elephant. Right? If you touch its trunk, it feels like something that's soft and that's curling and moving. I don't know. I've never touched elephants. Uh, if you're touching his uh, you know, legs or something, it's tough and hard. And so on. That's what I'm guessing what people are saying when they talk about that is, what that is. And what Paul is trying to do is he's approaching many of these things at different angles. And what he's doing is he's trying to help us understand the multiple dimensions as well as the angles of this gospel of grace that's much more complex than simply meets the eye. So this is why when he talks about justification, he, uh, he talks about various different words, imputation. Uh, he talks about different imagery such as redemption and so on. These are all part and parcel of explaining this big holistic picture of what this salvation in God to us looks like. And the same thing is true of sanctification as well. That in terms of in defining what this is, there is not just one end. Kind of like when you study, I was an undergrad history major. There's not one reason or uh, motivation for any action taking. There's not only one end or one destiny that one speaks of. And these things are all related to one another. 
That is, being like Christ is being where He is, and where He is is where life is, and this life is eternal life. And there is this kind of multiple ways of describing the same reality. He's not writing a systematic theology, you have to understand, right? He's not writing in the 21st century like a systematic theology, let's say like Burkhoff might have written. What it is, is that he's a systematic thinker, right? With the foundational ideas. And he's giving us systematic understanding with different images, different understandings, and different ways of approaching the same question. You might have noticed that even with chapters 6 and 7. All about the issue of law and sin and what sin looks like, approaching it multiple angles. I think if you look at it that way, you realize that they're all connected. It's a question of what does he emphasize at certain point in order to get us to better understand what that looks like. Right. Okay, so getting to the question about the third use of the law, I, I'm sure there are people here who have never heard the phrase the third use of the law. Um, this specifically Calvin or, or the Reformed third use of the law. When, when you say the law doesn't sanctify, how do we rightly understand or embrace what Calvin or the Reformed called the third use of the law? Um, and you might want to define that, that as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that there is a pedagogical value for us as believers as it disciples us to become more like Christ. Not only does it drive us to Christ, it is an essential tool for our growth as well as our transformation. Now, there is a lot of debate, even now, historically and in biblical studies arena, whether we can make the distinctions in terms of the usage of the law. That's a different question altogether in terms of some of the discussions that are taking place. This is not minimizing the significance and the importance of the law. As I said, one of the problems that we have in, in, our, in, in a believer's relationship to the law is to follow the path of antinomianism. That is, there is no law and the law has no value for me anymore. One of the things that we do have to keep in mind and very much pay attention to is the fact that uh, the law does not save. The question mark then is the second half of this equation and discussion. What is the role of the law in sanctification? In that, this is not a denial of the law's place, but the danger oftentimes the law plays in our minds and in what we do. Have you noticed that even in our sanctification, with good intention, sometimes our performances and things that we do start to take a hold of us in such a degree that it becomes law that we do in order to please God. So let me give you one example. There was a whole lot of time when quiet time was a huge factor in a believer. That is, every morning you should get up and you should do a, a booklet like a quiet time. And if you didn't, and somebody asked you, how was your quiet time this morning? And you felt guilty uh, because you didn't read a verse or a chapter or something. Oh, I, I, haven't, I haven't done it. Uh, this also happens with things like summer um, uh, uh, um, uh, foreign mission trips. Have you always noticed these uh, folks who go with good intentions go and come back and they have this kind of glazed eye like God is so good. I was able to share the gospel a lot. Well, it's easy because you're never seeing them again. Uh, that's part of the reason why people learn it. I think that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, but simply there are things that happen on those things that are really circumstantial and, and sociologically involved. 
But it becomes like, oh, if you go on these trips, you are a higher status believer. If you don't go on these trips, you're obviously not committed enough. You can talk about financial giving for that matter, right? Oh, if you give this much and commit yourself in this way, you obviously are really mature. And then others are not. Now, the reason I bring those examples, and we can multiply those examples as well, is not that the law is necessary for our sanctification, but it's not what sanctifies us. It's the spirit in us that allows us to properly view the law, empowers us to do it with grateful heart in a way that is acceptable to the Lord. So it's not the law itself that sanctifies. It's the Lord through the Spirit that allows us to use the law properly for its proper ends. So if the thought process is that I'm trying to deny the law, that's not it at all. There is a proper use of the law. But again, it's the proper use of the law that we're trying to emphasize here through the Spirit as it gives us perspective to the law and how it may be done in a way that is not only not detrimental to us, but that honors and brings glory to God. Let me press into that just a a bit. Because of the use of language, so I understand your use of language. You said when we... When we obey the law, even, and, and I guess what we're asking is, say I'm rightly motivated to obey the law. The spirit is working in me. I want to obey the law because I want to please my father. Um, you said that we can't use the law to please God. Do you mean by that as a foundation or basis of approval? Um, I.e., if I can't keep the law in order to get his approval as a basis for my relationship with him? Um, or do you mean by that that even as a son, I can't keep the law in a way that pleases my father? No, I appreciate that, Pastor Chad, very much. Because it's the latter that I have in mind. And I think the clarification is very helpful. And in, in the sense that, I mean, I'm sorry, what I mean by it is that it's the foundation discussion that I deny. And I accept the latter discussion, the distinction that you're making. It, the, the relationship between a believer and the law is a complicated one. And we recognize that. It's necessary, important, it's holy and good. It's not the foundation by which our relationship with God is established. But you're right. When we recognize the law as a reflection of the very character of God, his rightness, doing those things as as it's defined by the the word and scripture brings glory to him, brings joy to our Father in heaven. And I don't mean at any point to deny that particular aspect of it, but to we emphasized the point earlier that it cannot be the formation of our relationship with him. Appreciate that. So you're asking some questions and our responsibility in sanctification. And so what, what is our responsibility? And I'm going to read them to you. We can just figure out how we want to take them because they kind of, they're, they're basically of the same nature. Our sanctification, especially in Romans 8, is a work of the spirit of God in our lives. You said that it does not depend on willpower or self-discipline. Does willpower or self-discipline play any role in our walk? And if so, what is the role and what are the results? Now, this next question was, can you comment on the work of the Holy Spirit and our responsibility to grow in holiness? I think getting at the same question, what, 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 is, what do we do? Another one, with sanctification being by grace and all of God, how do we answer the slogan, let go and let God? 
or is sanctification not synergistic, in other words, us and God working together? Do we not have a part? What is our part? So it seems that all, all of these questions are asking, if sanctification is by grace through faith, by the working of the Spirit, etc., then, then do we have no responsibility? Is there no us working with God? Is it wholly passive? What, what, how does that work out with our responsibility? Yeah, I think the, 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 the caution that we're trying to work against is the word synergism basically means we cooperate with God in terms of our work of sanctification. Now, that can be defined in such a way that is not problematic. But let me, let me say what, where I find the problematic to be. That is, there is an assumption that there is an equal participation between us and God. Synergism seems to imply, and oftentimes be understood that way, that somehow God works and we participate. And this is where the, often the, de- the definition is, in justification, it's monergistic. That is God working in us. And we're passive recipients. And when it comes to sanctification, we are synergistic, that we cooperate with God in our own change. I think it's that understanding of synergism I would have a problem with. Because we do not have an equal stake nor power in this. Part of the reason for the emphasis is that I want to say that even in sanctification, God's grace is at work. And that's the whole point of Paul, right? That not only are we justified by grace, we are sanctified by grace. But I think it's a great question to ask, then, what is our part? I like the language, rather than synergism, to say here there is human responsibility, Right, And we talk about this again, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This obviously is God's sovereignty at work where the Spirit drives us in our sanctification to be more like Christ. And Scripture uh, reminds us that we have responsibilities. Responsibilities that we must pay attention to. How in that great wisdom of God does it calculate the percentage of our participation? There isn't, there is no mathematical formula here. Because at the end, even the desire to do comes from the Spirit. Because if the Spirit is not at work, that desire cannot be present. This is the recognition that we want to emphasize. That not just in justification, but in sanctification, if synergism is understood with proper place of God's preeminent role in changing us, fine, let's use the term, but often it engenders misunderstanding. But simply, God is at work in us, and we have responsibilities. What are those responsibilities? The scripture tells us. Scripture tells us in many ways. Part of that is just dependence through prayer. We pray. I know that sounds like, man, really, that's where you're going to begin? Yeah, I do want to begin there. Because the battle is one on our knees. If you have pornography problems, the battle is not won by you simply telling someone, stop me if I want to go there. It's a heart change that is necessary. Right? It's about recognition of that sin and that sin's abhorrent behavior, your hatred for yourself even after that happens, and how the heart changes such that the Spirit reminds you and brings you back from the precipice is what we're dealing with. So, yes, the Scripture reminds us that prayer and asking God to strengthen us by your Spirit is very important.
It says, fill your minds with those things that are beautiful and pure. It's not enough, right, that we simply, in our minds, deny something of ourselves. It's not good enough that we hate food and we deny food because we're going to constantly think about food, how hungry you are, how you didn't eat it, you can't taste it, it's beautiful if you taste it, and so on. Instead, that mind must be filled with something else. It must be filled with what is beautiful and pure. And Scripture tells us that your mind should be above where heaven is. Right? It should be preoccupied with Christ. It should place Christ before you all the time. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but here Scripture reminds us that in His revealed will, your minds and hearts will be filled with this, those things. Here, it's also a reminder, even Calvin, as Calvin points out, that He has given us means of grace. That we struggle on our own. What are those means of grace? Prayer is one. The other is worship. Do you know that worship time we have together is a, uh, a preparation for heaven? It's that one hour in a week, or perhaps two hours in a week, where we get to see Jesus seated on his throne in corporate worship, sing his praises. If you think worship is boring, it's going to be a problem for you in heaven, because that's all that you'll be doing. And what Scripture reminds us, that our worship hearing his word proclaimed, participating in the sacraments, it are the things that we need in order that we may continue to grow in our sanctification. Scripture reminds us to surround ourselves with people who would be accountable to us, both elders as well as people beyond us and those who are peers who are working with us to this end, spur one another to good deeds, who can turn to us and invade our backyard even with our permit, without our permission to point out without fear that these are elements in your life that needs work. These are elements in your life that needs to be invested in and investigated so that you may grow in your grace this way. These are all the things that the scripture clearly outlines as our responsibilities. But in this, as I was saying before, I think the nature of the question, because we emphasize grace so much, that it seems like we don't have responsibility. No, my issue is that even doing these things stems from grace. It's all of grace that allows us to do this. It doesn't take away our responsibility right, to watch ourselves and to continue to seek to grow in grace. Does that answer? Yeah, it's very helpful. And with that, it's good because the next question is about habitual sin. So, of course, it says, since mortification of sin and true sanctification come by the Spirit, what do you say to the professing believer who's committing a particular sin repeatedly? Lust, anger, etc. And at the same time says he or she longs for sanctification and mortification, and, but feels the Spirit isn't bringing about true repentance or holiness in these things. They're frustrated with what feels like God is not acting. How do you speak to this pastorally? I feel like, Pastor Chad, this should be your question. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Randy as well. Um, I, um, well, you you want to say something? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that anything you just said doesn't speak to this question. Um, 
But problem is, I'm not practical. You are. Well, you're, yeah, it was, what you said is it's eminently practical. Here's, we've talked about this even as pastors and here's, as we meet and pray um, for our congregation and think to the members. There's some members who are struggling with habitual sin. There's, there's particular sin in their life they don't seem to get free of. And then we have some members who are, are um, struggling with the same sin and getting free of it pretty, pretty quickly. And um, while, while we have to always account for the sovereign work of the Spirit, graciously doing what he's going to do, there, there is a difference in how sometimes people approach uh, the means of grace, you know, how they approach mortification. They tend to put off the sin they try to. So let's say it's pornography, often is, young guys especially. Yeah. Say it's pornography. Well, I get a, a web browser that protects me from going there, and I get an accountability group, and I have someone who emails, you know, gets an email of what I'm looking at, and, and I basically, you know, confess this sin to somebody. And they, they basically want to put it off, but they don't replace it with anything. They don't put on. And this is exactly what you're getting at, is... is the, the question of, so what are you putting it on? What are you putting on in this place? And, um, and, and instead, in the putting off, they actually begin to turn inward mm. and sort of go on idol hunts. You know, what's the idol behind this? Listen, that, that, that can be somewhat helpful, but it can also become intensely self-centered. Mm-hmm. Just got to search for the idol. What if, you, what if you can never know exactly what the idol is behind it? Because... You, you have all these mixed motives, and you're a big mess. Wretched man that I am. Mm-hmm. I go away from this body of death. What if you, it, it's, it's okay to recognize this is sin. There's some idolatry, I'm sure, driving it. I might be able to identify some of it. But now I have to turn from me and become, as David Pallison says, a lot more extrospective. Got to stop being interested and look out to Christ and begin to fill my mind with the things that are lovely and pure and of good repute, etc., I had to start to fill my mind with those things. We found that the men who have, have gone that way have tended to have more success mm. over that habitual sin or the people who have gone. However, with that said, there are still the weak brothers who continue um, or, and sisters who continue to wrestle. And I think from there we, we encourage them to keep fighting. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing being to continue praying. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a whole lot more to add to what you said to that. I mean than what you had already said. So This is why Pastor Andy and Pastor Chad do what they do and do it so well. I, 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 I don't think there's anything I can add more to that than and to uh, just say amen uh, to that statement. Um, last one, sanctification and assurance. Uh, because, again, as we work through this, I put assurance last because this becomes a thing that is difficult for people. And that pe- people have, I, I got several different questions. I'll kind of put them together. I know nothing can separate us, but our sinful mind says that I can. Review our hidden sins that we nurture in our struggles and condemn ourselves and question our salvation, then surrender to the hopelessness. How do we reconcile this? Simply, why are, why are we, me, myself, not included in verse 35? You sort of dealt with that with your bucket category. But somebody else goes on, what is the relationship between the evidence one sees in their life and the assurance that they found or that they have for what Christ has done on their behalf, how would you counsel someone who struggled with assurance because of the evidence that he or she sees in their life? Yeah, one thing that Pastor Chad said, which is a very important one, is that we have to distinguish between things that are subjective and things that are objective. 
uh, meaning that uh, even the reformers, as they're talking about assurance issues, distinguish between things that are objective, that is, the promise of Christ in the word that you hold on dear, versus subjective evidences, things such as changed life. Uh, we're, we're eminently unreliable, meaning that our minds change daily, if not hourly, minute by minute. minute. And the problem becomes, and this is where uh, I think perhaps Pastor Chad is uh, thinking about that as well, is that when you look at the, uh, the Orthodox, Reformed Orthodoxy in particular, the tendency of people to become overly subjective, looking for assurances within themselves, was considered a problem. Because it becomes a perpetuating problem. Because you depend on, you depend on foundation that is, that's always fleeting like sand and changing evermore. This is why oftentimes, not only in, during the Reformation, even now, and I think Paul does the same, that we, we are punching beyond our pay grade for us to think that we ourselves know what God is determining, except based upon his word. So here, when Paul comes back to discuss these issues in Scripture, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord and is resurrected from the dead is the confession that Paul saw as sufficient confession for one's belief in Jesus Christ. This is why you look toward Christ as the, the extroversion that we have. We are looking at the objective promise. The promise says in the word, which is living and never lies, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you hold on to the promises of God. And then this is where the sacrament becomes the sign and seal for us. That here in baptism, we were sealed into the family and we believe in the promises of God given in that sacrament that's given to us. And so here, what scripture gives us to, in, to us in terms of assurance is not introspection. Uh, extrospection is, I think, the phrase that you use or word you use. And I think that's exactly right. Because the idea is not a subjective assurance which changes but an objective assurance on the word of God where the word never changes and that word never fails good good um, thank you very much thank you very much this is very helpful I and, and just as a final admonition of this whole thing and if you guys didn't follow this throughout Paul's writings here in Romans um, is just continue to look to Christ and that's, that's what you're driving at. Dr. Kim is, well, not quite doctor yet, right? You're just about there. Anyway, the, the looking to Christ, this, this, this sense that uh, your faith is not where your hope is as if it's a virtue itself. It, your, your faith in Christ, the object of your faith, he's where your hope is. So if your faith is going to wane um, at times in the way how sincere it feels mm -hmm. to you. But Christ is never going to wane in how righteous he is. It's <laughs> not going to happen. And so just continue to look to him. Let me pray. Thank you for this. And Randy, you have, or you have Josh pray. Yes. Josh, why don't you pray for us? Then finish this. Father God, you are worthy for adoration of our praise. Hmm.
time spent today would be a good investment spurring our hearts Lord, to have an authentic testimony of how great you are and to worship and praise. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, what you have done, what you continue to do. We thank you for your grace and your election. Thank you for the, the work of Christ, the perfect work of Christ. Thank you for the power of the Spirit at work. Uh, thank you for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, Covenant Press, for helping to uh, put this on. Pastor Randy and the leadership there. Mm-hmm. We thank you for uh, our brothers and sisters of Sovereign Grace, Pastor Chad, and helping to host us today. We thank you for your work and our brother, Will Kim. We thank you for his salvation, his ministry, teaching, preaching, your sovereign plan to bring his family here and, and here now to Bakersfield today, last night, to provide uh, your word and be a blessing to us, the saints here in Bakersfield the work that you're doing here, that we would we would be not hearers only of these truths, but we would be doers. There would be great follow-up conversation, confession and repentance, ongoing sanctification by your grace and through us, God, the gospel will be known, lives will be transformed, and ultimately you will be glorified. Until we meet again um, in the streets of Bakersfield or wherever, God, we just, we, your family, your adopted sons and daughters, rejoice in you. Hmm. Amen.